All right, well, good morning. Great to be with you guys this morning. I love the Advent season. I love the way it looks. I love the way it sounds and feels. Uh, lots of reasons, I think, to love Advent. You know, if you're an extrovert, you love the parties. And uh, if you're an introvert, you're terrified. You know, <laughs> just like, I can't wait for January, you know. But you go to the parties, and then you have fun, and then you kind of rebuke yourself on the way home, and then you hide for a day or two, and then you're good. Love it. Love the family gatherings. I love presents. Uh, I get my mom still buys all my clothes, just so you know, I'm 56, so that can't actually work for you if that, that, if you get on the right system, you know? She's like, just tell me what you want. You know, I go to J. Crew. I'm like, how about this? You don't have to buy them all. And then she does, you know? I didn't really mean that. You don't have to buy them all. So anyway, the more I send, the more I get is what I've discovered over the years, which is kind of fun and it's nice. And I send things that I really need and would otherwise typically buy. So it lowers our family expenses and appeals to my Dutch sensibilities. You know, it's, it's good. Advent is great. But the reason to love Advent is because it ends in Christmas. It's the reason. You know, Ryan talked a little bit about the Advent season. What is it? It's a season of longing. It's a season of time in which Christians all over the world for centuries now have done what? What we do is we intentionally, we deliberately, we carefully, we thoughtfully enter into all of the things that we're longing for, looking for, searching for, hungering for, thirsting for. And then it ends in Christmas, which is the day of the year, year after year after year after year, where God steps up and goes, hey, you guys know that I I made provision for all of that, right? Like, I, I made provision for that. And his name is Jesus. He makes provision not in stuff, not in parties, not in family, but in Christ, which makes Christ a pretty unique individual. I mean, if you think about it, the deepest longings of your soul, sorry if you're married, but you've already discovered this if you've been married more than about 10 minutes, the deepest longings of your soul are not going to be found in the person that you're married to. You're not going to be found in having kids. Oh, that's going to do it. And then you have them. You're like, no, I love them, but that's not it. They're not found in your parents, in your friends. They're not found in your career, in your achievements. They're not found in money, no matter how much you get. There's a thirsting, nevertheless, God's like, yeah, it's an infinite thirsting. So I've got an infinite person. His name is Jesus. And he alone is the satisfaction for everything that you're looking for. You believe that? It's pretty remarkable. So last week we entered into the Advent season and Sam did a marvelous, amazing job. I came home from where we were and I watched it. I'm like, oh, it was fantastic. It was beautiful. And we went back in the book of Isaiah, which we're doing again today, but he went, took us back to Isaiah 7, verse 14. And he said, listen, let's talk about Jesus. Why is he unique? Why is he different? Why is he satisfying and nothing and no one else is? Well, Isaiah tells us what? More than two things. Let me give you two. He says, look, 730 years from now, Jesus will come. And Jesus will be God made man. He will be born of a virgin. His name will be Emmanuel. We sang that today. What does it mean? God way out there somewhere? No, no, no. It means that God has not left us in our longings. He's not disconnected. He's not unconcerned. He hasn't wound up the heavens and the earth like an old antique clock and, you know, set them on one of his celestial tables and while he went off to make a sandwich, you know, so it can just kind of work its way out on its own. But instead, he's intimately involved. What we talked about last week is the reality that the invisible, incomparable, intangible God of the universe, through a supernatural conception by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin named Mary, 
took upon himself real flesh and blood like mine and yours. He clothed himself authentically in our humanity and then on Christmas stepped into the warm lake of humanity. He came as one of us. God made man or Emmanuel, God with us. And why did he come? Because Sam talked about that as well. To save us, to rescue us. Let me use a different word, to claim us. He came to claim a people for himself. And here's what I want you to see today. What I want you to see today is that Jesus came in such a way as to make you want to be claimed. So we continue the conversation with Isaiah today in Isaiah 9, verse 6. And listen to what he says, because he's saying at least two things. He says, to us, a what? A child is born. To us, he says, a son is gifted. He's, he's, he's given. So what is he saying? Well, first of all, he's saying, look, the child that's born, the son that is given, isn't just given to Mary or Joseph or Zechariah or Elizabeth or Simeon or Anna or the Magi or the shepherds or all of these different characters that were originally a part of the Christmas story. But instead, he's like, you're part of the Christmas story. I'm part of the Christmas story. He's given to me. He's given to you. He's given to anyone, anywhere who will step forward by faith. And even with a tremulous voice say, look, you know, Lord, I understand that you've come to claim people. I'd like to be claimed. He's come to you. And secondly, he's come in a way that is designed to make you want to be claimed. To us, a son is born. To us, a child is given. Guys, he didn't come as an all-consuming fire. He came as a baby. Try to get your head around that. I remember years ago, 27 years ago, we had our first baby. Beth and I did. And her name is Morgan. And so she's 27. She's married, to, actually, to Will, who was just up here. Uh, she's a Christian school teacher. She is an eighth grade English teacher, which basically means that she has superhero powers. Can we agree? I mean, you've got to be amazing to do that and to do it well. She loves her work, and she does it well, and it's awesome. We're just incredibly proud of her. But when we had her, I mean, this is our first child. This is our first baby, okay? She was utterly and completely helpless. You've experienced this. You take this child into your hand, and she can't even hold up her head. You know, it's like, you know, what do, what do all the parents who hand you their child do? They're like, support the neck, you know, dummy, come on. I don't know, I've never held one before. <laughs> so you have to do that? Yes, and everything else. I remember, like, for three weeks, I was in a daze. Like, I was in a semi-state of panic. I just kept thinking to myself, this child is so helpless. Like, if something happened to me, for example, my wife would... She'd survive. Eventually, she'd be fine. Highly capable, highly employable. She was good before me. She'd figure it out after me. Like, I wouldn't be fearful that she would die. That's my point, okay? Morgan, oh my goodness. If we don't feed this kid, she'll starve to death. I, I, I mean, if we don't bathe this kid and change her diaper, she'll just lay there in her filth. In fact, if we don't move her, she can't even move. The only thing she was capable of doing that I could tell was to scratch her face because she had these like really razor sharp, tiny little paper thin nails and she would kind of, you know, like a baby. And so we had to put socks on her hands. I'm like, oh my goodness, all she can do is harm herself. (laughs) This is all she's capable of doing. Now, wait a minute. The almighty God of the universe one who spoke the worlds into the being, possesses all wisdom and all knowledge and all power. As when he came to you, 
came like that. Take that in. Why would he do that? I mean, you know, if his goal, for example, and it speaks to his goal, if his goal is simply to get us to all bow down before him, he could do that in an instant. Could he not split the skies, pour forth the heavenly forces, and everyone, everywhere on earth would be like, oh, Lord, whatever you want. You know, my wallet's in my back pocket. Just take it, anything else. Like, take it, take it, take it. Just save my, say, please, just take Like, boom, done. It's not the goal. That would be easy. What he did was much more difficult. Some far greater kind of strength. It's the strength of weakness. Boy, you've got to be strong to be weak. It's the power of vulnerability. You need to be powerful to be vulnerable. It's the might of humility. Whew, humility comes from a place of might. What is his goal? His goal is to get us to come to him in, in, in willing surrender and to bow before him, yes, but in joyful worship. In other words, his goal is not to convert you from an enemy into a slave. His goal is to convert you from an enemy into a friend and ultimately into a family member. And what kind of environment cultivates that? Because it's not fear. It's not power. Friendship is cultivated in weakness. It's cultivated in vulnerability. It's cultivated in humility. In fact, it presupposes humility. It's a necessary ingredient. Look, his goal is to get us to come to him and say, hey, I hear you're here to claim people. And I'd actually like to be claimed. That's the goal. And there is nothing more weak, and there is nothing more vulnerable, and there is nothing more humble. Let me add to that, there's nothing more disarming or magnetic than a baby. I mean, even when the most hard-hearted of us are forced, and that's the only way we'll do it, to hold a baby, you know, here you go, support the neck, you know, dummy, come on. I don't do this much. We melt. We start, you know, oh, look at the little, you know, like, who are you right now? You know, look at the little, all the cute little dimples. We're walking over here so nobody hears us because we sound like an idiot, you know, like, but everybody does it. It's okay in that context. We're captivated by this thing that we know is precious, by the face of a child. Hey, Jesus, you've come to claim people, and you came like that? I'm attracted. I'm taken. I'm disarmed. That's the idea. So when he chose to come to us, he didn't come as a fiery, you know, furnace or whatever. He came as a baby, but he did come as a baby king. Isaiah continues, he says, And the government, which is a word that speaks of his authority and power, shall be where? It's a weird place. It shall be upon his shoulder. You know, I've never thought about this, but Sam Kassensmith pointed this out to me this week. He's like, that's a weird spot on his shoulder. And then he sent me this amazing quote by Tertullian of Carthage. He was one of the church fathers. He lived and wrote about two generations, perhaps, after the apostles. Second century. Listen to what he says. He says, now what king is there who bears the ensign of his dominion upon his shoulder and not rather upon his head as a diadem, as a crown, or in his hand as a scepter, or else as a mark in some royal apparel? But the one new king of the ages, Jesus Christ, carried on his shoulder both the power and the excellence of his new glory. And what is that? Even his cross. 
Think about that. He comes as a baby, strength of weakness. Again, as a baby, power of vulnerability. Hey, as a baby, humility who grows up into a man who displays the ultimate strength of weakness, the ultimate power of vulnerability, the ultimate might of humility by willingly going to a cross so that he can claim you. And notice the rest of the quote. He says, even his cross, so that, according to our former prophecy, this statement that the government shall be upon his shoulder by Isaiah, Jesus might thenceforth reign from the tree of the cross as Lord. It is from the cross that he calls you to be his friend. It is from the cross that he calls you to be his family. And it is from the cross that he calls you to be his subject, a citizen of his kingdom, over which he does indeed reign and rule as king which is a little bit intimidating and kind of difficult for us as Americans to understand. You know, I've talked about this in the past, but our rulers here in this country are merely politicians, and the operative word is merely. They are just people to whom we delegate limited authority for a limited period of time, and if we're happy with what they do with it, we try to keep them in office. If we're not happy with what we do with it, they try, we try to get them out of office. You get the idea? You know what that means? It means that they're not a king. A king reigns and rules with absolute authority, and he doesn't worry about opinion polls or elections or currying favor or gaining votes. And if he has wisdom, therefore, he can rule wisely. He can make the long-term right decision, even if he knows that in the short term, nobody's going to like it. Our politicians are like, listen, this is what would be right long-term, but we've got midterm elections coming up. It's going to be unpopular. We can't do it. King's like, I'm just going to do it because there's no vote coming for me. I'm the king. And what do you have that the king doesn't already possess? Nothing. The king has money, he has fame, he has position, he has power on me. Guys, he's, he's the king. And so, practically speaking, what does that make him invulnerable to? It makes him impervious to corruption. How do you bribe somebody who has everything? You can't. I'm about to make a monarchist out of you. What's the problem with that form of government? It is that every good king dies. And that at least is eventually replaced by somebody that we call a tyrant. And so as great as it was under the good king, it's, it's by orders of magnitude worse under the bad king. Okay? But Jesus is a different kind of king, isn't he? I mean, first of all, he's a king who never dies. He has himself defeated death, and not just for himself, but for me and for you. It's remarkable. Talk about wisdom. He possesses all wisdom. Talk about authority, all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth given to him. There's no rival kingdom. There are no rival kings. There's no other team, if you will. He is completely and wholly pure, impervious to all corruption. And more than that, he's a king who doesn't come along and conscript you into his army and send you out onto the battlefield to fight and die for him. But instead, he takes you up onto the battlefield and he says, hey, I just brought you here so that you can see all the things you're up against and realize you got no shot. Now get behind me, because from the cross, I'm going to fight and die for you. I'm going to fight your darkness and defeat it with my light. I'm going to, defy, I'm going to fight your sorrow and defeat it with my joy, your failures with my successes, your worthlessness with my worth, sin, death, all of it, I will defeat for you. And I will fight and die to win your way into a very different world, one characterized 
by love and by peace and by joy and by justice. It's the world to come. It's an eternal world over which he will reign and rule as king. And all of us who have faith in him as his subjects. Guys, he's come in such a way as to say, listen, you know, I mean, take a look at me because I don't feel like I should be freaking you out at this point. I feel like I should be magnetic. I feel like you should be drawn in. What a privilege it is to have someone like that as your king, but more than that, as your father. Isaiah continues, and he says, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting, what? Father, and Prince of Peace. For peace is what he brings to his children. So I want you to think about children with me for a second. Not not 14-year-old children, like 4-year-old children, okay? What is the chief disposition of a, of a little child? And maybe you have two-year-olds and you're thinking selfishness, okay? But that's up there, that's up there. But it's not all the way up there. It's trust. Children trust. They trust their parents implicitly, their teachers implicitly. One of the things that we have to do every, every day with our kids when they're little is to teach them who they cannot trust. It's the world we live in. Children trust, but when they take that trust and then they place it into the care of a good, wise father, that trust is rewarded overwhelmingly because what then becomes the experience, the chief experience of the child who trusts in a good father? Freedom from care. They're carefree. I mean, think about the life of that kid. He produces nothing. He has everything. That's a good deal. I mean, that's better than getting clothes from your mom when you're 56 on Christmas. It's amazing. He makes no plans. He doesn't take any thought of the future at all, honestly. And yet his life shows forth a wisdom of planning that obviously comes from his father. It's remarkable. He goes in and out of his father's house with ease. He enjoys all of its comforts, all of its provisions, all of its protections, all of its wonders without contributing so much as a penny. In fact, he's costly, but the dad is like happy to pay for it. Because this is my son. It's my child. War, fire, famine, disease may rage all around the child who trusts in his good father. And even though it's surrounding him, he's at peace. I don't know about you, but that kind of makes me want to be a kid again. And yet there's a sense in which that's what God is inviting us into. You know, he's coming to us in Jesus and he's saying, listen, through the expense of the life of my son on the cross, I am going to remove all of the things that you have stacked up between me and you so that you might have me as your father and I might have you as my child. And we win in that equation every single time. It's, it's amazing. It's remarkable. I think I shared this story before, but um, when my son was a little boy, uh, he went through this season of time where like he was just terrified at night. So he would go to sleep, he'd have these terrifying dreams, and then he'd wake up and it was no bueno. And so we realized pretty quickly that the world of sleep was terrifying to him. And the only solution that we could come up with was basically to go to bed with him at the same time. So like at 7.30, either Beth or myself, and I'll just use me, but she did as much or more of this than I did. But, you know, I'd go in there and I'd lay down with him at 7.30 or whenever he went to bed. 
And, and I just, I put my hand on his heart and I'd pray for him. And, I, and then after that, I'd say, buddy, dad's right here. I'm not going anywhere. You're going to be fine. You're safe. You can go to sleep now. And this little guy would just turn over in his bed and like in three seconds, he was gone. It was amazing. I've never fallen that sleep, that, asleep that quickly in my whole life. It was beautiful, really. As I thought about that, you know, I think to myself, all right, so <laughs> the sleeping world is not the scary one for us. Can we agree? And the only thing scary about sleep for me is, am I going to fall asleep? That's it. It's the only fear involved. Waking up to the real world is the problem. And yet, if you think about it, what's the cure? It's a father, isn't it? Who doesn't just lay down next to us in bed, but who by his spirit lives within us. It's a father who doesn't just place his hand on our heart, but who gives us a brand new heart. It's a father who doesn't just reassure us as we enter into the scary world, but he can't go into that world with us because that was the deal with my son. Like, you know, I could reassure him, reassure him, reassure him, and I'm like, oh, dear Lord, please, no nightmare. I couldn't go into the dream world with him to fight off the bad guys. But God awakes with us. He goes everywhere we go. He's with us in every moment of every day. My goodness, look at the things that he's inviting you into through Jesus and compare that to what you're longing for. But then realize that he's come to you guys in such a way as to draw you to himself. Not to scare you into a relationship, but instead to come to you and to go, you know, take a good look because here's what I think the reaction ought to be. In fact, it should. It should be going, hey, Jesus, I, um, <clears throat> I don't uh, know if uh, you'd be willing to take me. But if you're claiming people, I'd like to be claimed. What does Jesus say about the would you be willing to take me part? He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So there it is. What are you longing for? Because Christmas is coming. And the answer God gives us every year on Christmas, and it plays on every other day of the year, you don't have to wait is the idea, is Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And he does it in a way as to draw you to him. So in closing, I just want to challenge you to do three things. So number one is just surrender to Jesus. You know, you're like, I've been a Christian for 48 years. I've already done that. Yeah, but what are you longing for? And are you looking for it outside of him? You know, there's a moment in time oftentimes where we've got to go, oh my goodness, I am so far off track and I need to get back on track. Okay, well, this is a get back on track day. This is, this is a good day. What a great opportunity to come back and to say, you know what, I need to recommit to the Lord. I need to be filled by his spirit. I need to recommit to pursuing relationship with him, to walking in relationship with him, to growing in relationship with him. Because as I grow in relationship with him, what happens? My trust level increases and my fear level decreases. Because I realize, yeah, I've got a father. No matter what comes, it's all good. He's got this. Or maybe you have never done that. And you're like, yep, never done that. 
well, great, come talk to us after the service. We would love to try to answer your questions as best we can. And to make this the day where you go, yeah, you know what, I'd, I'd like to begin that journey. And, and, and that begins by, by willingly surrendering to Jesus, saying, here, here it is. So that's the first thing. The second thing, you, Will talked about it, quiet evening, Christmas Eve. I want you to begin to look at our church as a church that is here to resource you to reach the world. One of the ways we do that is through things like the quiet evening. I serve as a volunteer the quiet evening year after year. It's actually fun. Like I go out on the, out here, usually I'm a parking lot attendant or whatever. And I, man, I, what a wonderful night. I sit in the back, you know, because we serve communion at the end of it. And I just listen and I, and I watch and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. It's a really amazing opportunity for you to reach out to somebody who is one of your women friends and invite them to come with you. It's not scary. Same thing with Christmas Eve, these little invitation cards. I mean, they're just pieces of paper unless we do something with them. You get the idea? Bill Kelly, one of our elders, he used to say to me year after year, he'd go to people and he'd just say, you know, and he was like one of the greatest evangelists I've ever known. (laughs) He would just go up to people and, and I mean, you couldn't not like Bill, so. But he would just say, hey, listen, everybody goes to Christmas somewhere on Christmas Eve. I'd like you to come with me. I'm going to come pick you up. You good with it? Like, people just were like, um, I, I, I guess, you know, like, and, and, then, and then they'd come. Amazing. What an opportunity. Santa's wish list. Great opportunity. Years ago, we participated in this every year, but we, we brought a bicycle to this girl. And, uh, and she was home, like, and she's home with her mom, you know, so there's not going to be any surprise, you know. They came out, I'm like, well, you got a bike. I mean, you know, it's, you don't wrap a bike, you know, it's like wrapping a football. I wonder what that is. So I pulled the bike out of the back of our Tahoe and this kid who was like 10 got on the bike and she just started riding it around in the cul-de-sac and it was just like racing around, you know, and she just let, like the, the smile, I took a video of it. The smile on her face was amazing and I, I sent it uh, to Eric, the guy who has founded this thing called Santa's Wishlist. I'm like, this is why you did this. Here it is. And the mom was in tears comes with a little card that, you know, is from the church. So they understand this, this came not from us, but ultimately from God through us. What a wonderful opportunity for you to serve somebody, uh, to meet somebody's need, to say to someone out there somewhere, God knows who you are. God knows where you are. God knows what you need. God is meeting that need. And you need to know him. Powerful. Amazing. Guys, Advent is the season of longing. Christmas is the day where God goes, I got it. I got it covered. I haven't left you to figure it out. I have figured it out for you. And the answer is the person of Jesus Christ. And I am coming to you in Jesus. I'm sending him to you in such a way as to not terrify you into obedience. But to draw you in. It's the face of a child. It's the strength of of weakness. It's a king under whom it is a privilege to exist and serve. So, come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for the skill with which you operate and manage all things. Lord, we thank you for the love and for the care and for the tenderness that we see in the way that you approach us through the person of Jesus. God, we thank and praise you for the strength 
displayed in your weakness, the power in your vulnerability, the might in your humility. And I pray that your spirit would so operate in our hearts as to cause us to bow before you. Not because we're scared, Lord, but because we can't resist. Lord, let us bow before you in willing surrender, in joyful worship. Convert us, God, not from enemies to slaves, but from enemies to family. Make us your children and put your hand upon our heart and make it new. We praise you, Lord. We love you. We are grateful for you. It's all for you. In Jesus' name, amen.